I look at grit along the lines of what she was talking about, which is you have a passion for something and then you have perseverance when things don't go right. You have the ability to step in and do it again and move your arm a little bit more on the boom and move it again and move it again until you get it, right? Like to be able to have that perseverance to fail. To me, that's real grit. Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Now let's get to the episode. Marcy, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Jubin. I like to get pretty much all of these things started the same way. I read my guests' backgrounds back to them. If you'll indulge me, I will read your background to you. There are quite a few different variations of jobs in here, so I'm gonna go through these, and then when I screw something up, you tell me, and uh, we'll take it from there, deal? Deal. All right, you got your BA in history from the University of Hartford, then you went to IBM. I've heard you talk about your time at IBM before. This is really your formal sales education. I've heard you say that your first 18 months there, they didn't even let you talk to a customer. It was all about engineering, learning how to code, learning how to cold call, et cetera. So you did that for seven years from 84 to 91. You then went to Lotus Development and probably got your first management gig. You were a district manager there for four years. Then you went to Netscape. You did that for two years from 95 to 97. Then Kana Communications from 97 to 2000, where you did enterprise sales and channels. You were an entrepreneur in residence after that for about a year at a small venture firm. Then you went to Moonlight Systems, SVP of Worldwide Sales and Marketing for two years. That was ultimately acquired by Patchlink. You did consulting for a bit, and then you went to CA. At CA, you did channel-type sales, it looks like, for a couple of years. And then I knew I was going to screw this up, but MX Play, Mix Play? MX. MX, cool. Yeah. You were the VP of Biz Dev and Marketing for a year. That was ultimately acquired. Then you went to Jivox. Jivox. Jivox, perfect. This is actually less errors than I'm used to. And you were the <laughs> VP of strategic sales for one year. Then you went to Engine Yard and you did five years there, four of which were as the VP of worldwide sales and marketing, one of which was as SVP of alliances and biz dev. Cubal for three years, SVP of worldwide sales and BD, then SVP of worldwide sales. That was three and a half-ish years. Then you became a board member at a company called Zix, and now you are at PayPal. What originally started as a division of PayPal called Braintree, you have been there for three and a half years, starting in Braintree as the head of North America sales, now the VP of worldwide sales, then the VP of worldwide Braintree sales, and then you started to make your foray into large enterprise PayPal sales, and then uh, VP and GM of North America for PayPal for a year, couple other things in PayPal. Long story short, you basically run PayPal at this point. Um, <laughs> I don't think Dan Schulman would like that very much. <laughs> Before I let you correct me, you were also awarded the Most Influential Woman in Payments Award. Congratulations, that was, I think, this year. A couple of years ago, you were awarded by the Silicon Valley Business Journal Woman of Influence Award. There's not enough accolades to go through this resume. So I'll pause. What did I screw up, Marcy? Not much. I think that... The major theme of my career has been, I've been in sales for a really long time and in go-to-market. I've ventured into channel and business development as well as marketing at different times in my career. The other thing that my resume doesn't tell very well is that I've actually followed leaders. 
So I have pretty much been, all those little jumps have been because I've worked for people either in Silicon Valley who are starting companies who asked me to help them, or there were venture firms that asked me to come and either start to consult with them and then I joined the firm or asked me to come and get things off the ground. So, you know, at Jivox, I worked with Diaz Nizamoni, who was the founder of Informatica. At Engineard, I worked for John Dillon, who was the CEO of Salesforce. At Netscape, I was brought to California by Todd Rulin Miller and Mike Homer. I worked with Peter Curry, who mentored me for a period of time. I also, when I was consulting, I worked for a number of benchmark capital companies as well as August Capital Companies. And so I think it goes back to my experimental nature and my love of building and creating something out of nothing. And so those are sort of the themes across my career. I also think as a woman, I haven't really had a straight line up through the management hierarchy until I got to PayPal. And that's where my career really took off in terms of the ability to scale. You mentioned as a woman until you got to PayPal. What do you mean by that? You know, I spent a lot of time in early stage startups where I would come in and help build, you know, the zero to 50 million, the zero to 75 million, the zero to 100 million. And I get to a point where I would be asked to move over to business development or to do channel or do other things. And I got replaced by my male counterparts who had more opportunity to move into scaled positions. And my last two startups were going pretty well for me. And I was asked to move horizontally again. And at the time, I was approached by Juan Benitez and a recruiter who used to work for me at Kana, who asked me if I'd come in and help them at Braintree. I am very people-oriented. And one of the things I wanted to do, I love the company I was at, which was Cubal, but I really wanted to scale and I wanted the opportunity to do that. And I think in order to do that as a woman, you have to be in an environment where people are a little gender blind. And I think that this is a really good time actually to be in sales as a woman because we're all very popular. In the last 10 years, I've been asked many different questions. One from a VC once who asked me, you know, I know you wanna be a VP of sales, but how do you travel as a woman and having kids? And you know, that question is, I think, honestly illegal, but those are the kinds of questions that I would get, you know, in the early 2000s and 2010 that don't exist now. Like people are looking for that diversity and you want to be in an environment where you can grow and learn based on what you bring to the table. I think being in the venture community, it's been pretty hard to do that initially to break into that world. I think there are women who have done it and have done it really successfully. And I have a lot of admiration because I know what it takes. You know, I've been lucky enough to work with a who's who of really talented women like Karen Richardson and Judy Webster and others who have been in the senior positions before and who've carved out the opportunity for people like me. Yeah. How many companies have you worked for? I've done 11 startups. 11 startups. I've done 11 and I've had four to five exits. Netscape, you'd consider like a startup, right? When I went to Netscape, it was a bigger company, but we were still a startup and we were running at a pace that is very different than a large company like IBM. So let me try and articulate this 
well, and I won't, so just take with it what you will. But as I was looking through your resume and your background, you did IBM. You had obviously what looks like a pretty successful seven-year run there. Then you go to Netscape, which when you were there was kind of the heyday, like it was a pretty good time to be at Netscape. And there are certain companies that have these amazing lineages of talent. Netscape is one of them, where you see some really incredible people come out of there. So you go to IBM, you do a great job, you build a great network, you're successful. You go to Netscape, you do a similar thing. You're successful. You do the big company, you do the smaller company. You then go to Kana, which is a benchmark company, which I still think at the time, benchmark was still, I don't know if they're the benchmark of today, but they're certainly, you know, they weren't Joe Schmoes back then either. And you had a great run at Kana. Like you were super successful. Like you were a made woman. In that sense, to your point, like there's a reason benchmark kept recruiting you to go to other places. I guess what struck me was that you did another 12 startups from there and you kept diving in what felt like fearlessly, and I don't know if that's the right word, even though you were kind of made. And let me just frame this all the way. Like in our world, when I see someone with, okay, you just did Kana, usually people are very, very deliberate about the next move and they wanna make sure they don't pick wrong. And I feel like you don't really care. I'm just making all these extrapolations and assumptions. So tell me if I'm totally wrong there, but it was something that stuck out to me. I think it's not that I don't care. I think it's more around the people that I'd work with. Yeah. And do they have a vision and, and are they willing to take risks? You know, if you look at me personally, I've never done anything a straight line. Like you talk about my history on my resume. You know, when I was in college, before I started some graduate work, I ended up driving myself cross country to go ski in Alta, Utah. And I ended up skiing 120 days. I'm an extreme skier. I love it. I then, when Kana went public, bought a house in Alta for my boys. But when Kana went public, and after I worked at Kana, I was a single mom with two kids. And I was in an environment where I really wanted to go back out. And I loved the startup environment. And I was extremely good at taking something from pre-revenue to at that point, it was an IPO, although I'd say it was a time where things were IPOing early. I had the opportunity to be an entrepreneur in residence, and I took that job because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I wanted the opportunity to understand the venture world. And what was interesting for me is I sat on boards before I ever really presented to a board. So I did things sort of backwards. And that gave me a different purview of like, okay, I was the person in the room who was asking all the kind of stupid questions that when you go and present to a board now, you're like, okay, I told them that already, but they don't remember, <laughs> you know? And so it was pretty interesting for me because it was a learning curve and I'm all about the learning. And to me, this is like being a lifelong learner and doing extreme things. You know, my husband and I just bought a ranch down here in uh, San Luis Obispo. We bought 400 acres. We did that because we wanted to have a legacy property for our boys, but also because we ride motorcycle dirt bikes, right? And we windsurf and we jet ski. And so to me, it's about how much risk can you take in your life and still be successful. And sometimes you fail and you learn a lot of, from those failures. You know, one of the things I taught my boys when they're growing up in Silicon Valley in a series of who's who is that you've got to just show up, pay attention, listen to the environment you're in and set goals for yourself, but 
understand that you can't be attached to a singular outcome because other things may come out that are pretty magic. I think the reason why I've had a lot of success at PayPal and why it's been a fit for me is because of my startup experience. Because I come in and I say, okay, I ran marketing, I ran sales. I understand the value of hiring and firing and understand how you can work with scarcity with very, very small resources and what the value of speed is. And when you go to a large company who is in a transformation where they're trying to define themselves in a new space, it opened a lot of opportunities for me, given the experience that I had. I don't look at the experiences of the companies that didn't make it as negative. I just look at it as, as an extension of my network. I know people everywhere now. And if you're true to yourself and you're true to other people, you end up having an enormous reach and an impact on other people's ability to become successful. So you said like how much risk can you take? A lot of previous guests that I've had, all super successful like you, have a fire burning in their belly from a fear of failure. There's often a fear of failure that motivates them. And when you think about fear of failure, the problem with risk is that there's an inherent probability that you will fail. That's the point of risk. What's your relationship to failure? How do you think about this notion of failing when you continue to take risks? And that failing could be a startup doesn't work out or failing could be like you fall on your dirt bike. Yeah, I know. I, I did that just recently and, <laughs> and I ended up wrecking my ankle for six months, which is oh, just a nightmare. But I think the thing is for me, it's not about failure, it's about the incremental learn, right? So you fail up, basically. And my husband's a nationally ranked triathlete and he was the assistant coach at Cal. Both my stepkids went to Cal and, and one was a swimmer. And he was one of the top swimmers recruits out of California when he joined Cal and went on a scholarship there. And the challenge is if you never fail, what happens when you actually do hit failure, because we all hit it, it's all about your reaction to failure and what do you take from it? And there are points where you fail and you have to sit back and say, okay, what was mine? What did I contribute to that failure and what can I learn? And if you step back and you learn, then you can use that going forward, right? You learn as much from your failures as you do from your successes. Successes just offer you more opportunities to have a broader platform to fail, <laughs> to fail more, I guess. But I think you have to look at failure as a necessary part of the journey. Yeah. And you have to integrate your responses to that failure in a way that you can continue to take risks. For me, I think I have a different risk profile than a lot of folks that are in big companies, but I always have a plan B. So as a sales exec, enterprise sales is chess. So it's about like, okay, if that doesn't work, then I got to do this. What's my fallback plan? And so I always tell my teams, I'm like, look, where's our plan B? Yeah. Right? You got to have a plan B because you, you know, you got a percentage of what's going to work. And if you look at your career and, you know, I wish I could look at my career backwards and tell you there was a plan. I think it was that I really followed very strong leaders and I had certain goals for myself that I wanted to do financially. And I was able to hit those goals. When we went through the downturn in the early 2000s, I was hit pretty hard and had to rebuild a lot of the things that I had established in my life. And that took a lot of soul searching as to whether or not I was going to do it on my own again. Coming out as a single mom and taking that kind of risks in your career, 
I could have gone into a larger company and I could have just taken on a, a mid-level position and, and rose to that company. I chose not to do that because I have an enormous passion for building things and for being sort of in the new, new. And I have a lot of affinity for engineers and for people who have, you know, deep technical expertise. That combination to me has always been kind of magic. I feel similarly about failure. Like I was talking to Chris Degnan, the CRO of Snowflake, about how he relates to failure. And, you know, I kind of said, like, I keep a log of failures because I want to remind myself of what the next opportunity might be. <laughs> and I guess what makes me insecure about failure, if I was being really honest with myself, is the way that others will perceive that failure, not me. I crave the failure because I know what's on the other side of it. But I do get a little bit nervous about like, I'm allowed to view myself in a certain given time frame as a failure because I know I'll come out the other end stronger. I would never let someone else think of me that way because that's like at my core, everything I don't want to be. Have you never felt that way or did you get over that early? I have always been the underdog. So for me, I've always been in a position where people's expectations of what I can deliver have been less than what I believe I can. And so that perception of people looking at me or thinking about, oh, they're going to see me as a failure. I just never think about it. It's just not like I'm living an authentic life. I'm doing the things that I want to do. And, you know, I have a true north about what I consider as my successes. And I've been blessed by working with some really outstanding people that most people would say, oh my God, they're incredibly successful. And they've mentored me. And I look at that as a success, even if it doesn't turn into an outcome that most people would think is a success. I walk away and say, I ran marketing for a year. I know how to do lead generation. I know how to do ABM. I know how to set up a successful machinery from beginning to end on doing pipeline to capacity planning at scale. Like there's always something out of that failure that you can take, but it's a very personal thing. I always find it funny when people are like, oh, you're so successful. And I'm like, but I'm the same person who was a failure like three years ago. Right. You know, right. like, right. and so I just know more. And I think it's interesting because when you are in an environment that's so competitive and so focused on the short-term goals, it's hard to look at the long-term arc of your life and the impact that you provide. You know, you talked about the awards I have. Most of those come because I spend a lot of time mentoring other women. My downtime now is spent with the Asian University for Women and helping women get first-generation college education and raising money for that. I mentor nine people within PayPal right now, nine women, about like how do they manage their career and the things they should think about and being brave and taking risks, right? And if you're in a position where there were less expectations about what you were going to deliver, the idea of failure just doesn't really, you know, when you hit success, people are like, wow, you ended up president of your class. How did that happen? You know, versus, oh, well, we expected that from you because you have all the right attributes and the pattern matching of someone who would be successful in this role. I don't know if that's very articulate, but, but that's the way I feel about failure. It was very articulate. The notion of learning is closely coupled for me with this idea of failure. Every time I want to jump into something new, all I'm thinking about is how much I'm going to learn. Call me arrogant or whatever, but I, I don't think I'm going to fail. 
I just know I'm going to learn. And I think over the long run, I'm winning. That's, totally. that's me being successful. And so every position that I'm in, I actually feel like I'm losing when I'm really comfortable. Me too. The minute that I am failing is the minute that I'm too comfortable because I'm not learning as much as I would like to be. Yeah, I think that's right. I, you know, I told my new team, I have a new team that's a, I just got a, a new position running global professional services, right? It's just inherited 600 people. I also run a hundred person sales team on all the new products that PayPal is, is rolling out as a subject matter expert team. So that's shopping, PayPal, Venmo, buy now, pay later, and the QR codes. And and they're two separate areas. And I took over from this woman who had deep expertise in professional services. And I came in and told this 600-person team that I'm team in training. I'm like, I'm team in training. It's all about learning. I am going to bring nothing but my management skills here. And, you know, that to me is where I'm most comfortable is when I have that curve in front of me. One of the things I, I've been windsurfing for... I don't know, 10 years. I think it was after one of my failures. I ended up buying a bunch of windsurf equipment, going out to the Delta and teaching myself how to windsurf. And I now can sail in Maui and do other things. But when I'm out there, all I care about is, is my foot in the right place? Is my hand in the right place? Am I turning the sail? And so you're immersed in the actual event of learning. And when you're immersed in that, like there's magic there. And I think that's the same thing with work. Right. And the same thing with being in a place where you're taking some risks and you don't know the answers. And so you're going to learn as fast as you can. So you can make that pivot, make that jive. It's very zen. Not to press you on this, but like, do you think there's success bias when you say that? I.e., when you look back, obviously you've done great for yourself. Right. And so reflecting back on your career in the moment before you made it, do you think you were able to be as present about where your foot was and where your hand was on that jibe? Or do you think now you can more succinctly say like, you know what, I can really focus on being present there? Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a, a matter of maturity that you bring over time, especially if you failed in the past, because you know what the effect of failure is. And you know, when you're one point, you pick up the phone, you can call anybody in in your Rolodex and everybody picks up the phone and the next time you do it, people don't take the call. And then the next time they do again, and you see the difference, you know, I had this period in my life where, you know, I grew up in Connecticut. I remember going back to New York where I lived and when the boys were little and thinking when I, when Kana hit saying, oh my God, I could buy any house there I want. And I wanted nothing because I could have everything. And then when I went through the downturn and I lost a number of things in my life, so I got divorced. I lost a lot of my money. I ended up supporting my boys on my own and had to rebuild from scratch to do it again. I'm like, what are they going to do? Then I wanted everything. Then again, I was like, oh, I got I to gotta have these things. And, and that lesson for me was really telling. So I think that, you know, I don't know many people that have gone through and, and hit it really hard and made millions of dollars and then lost millions of dollars and had to make it again. And that journey for me has been difficult, but at the same time, I think it's been extremely rewarding to be in a position that I am in right now. So you mentioned earlier, like the boxes that people put you in, right? And, and I talk about this actually quite a lot in, in the show. And, and I've seen this like working at Kleiner, everyone but the CEO is in a box, right? The founder, <laughs> 
right? So the zero to 50 gal or the 50 to 100 guy or the IPO CFO or whatever it is, right? Everybody's kind of in the box except for the founder. Okay, as an example, at Engine Yard, you sold to developers. At Cubal, you sold to C-Level. You'd never sold to developers at that point. The sales process is so different. Like, do you think selling is just selling? Do you think it's the same shit everywhere? Like, how can you just walk in like that and build a bottoms up sales motion and then flip it around and then do a top down? This is interesting. This is an interesting question for me. I would never build the same sales motion for company A versus company B without understanding what the products were, who they sold to, who the persona was, what the market dynamics were. And at that point, all of those things, it's almost like a PM job when you're early stage sales. You go out and you find out who's out there, what sales motions do you have to have based on who your customer is. And, you know, it was interesting for me because after building, you know, a development sales team, we built what we called pandas, which were polite agents of non-destructive assimilation because developers hate salespeople. So we would hire kids out of Cal with engineering degrees and tell them, you know, you have to be a panda first before you can move into other areas within EngineYard. And we got a lot of great pandas who then lived in the community and helped us help people buy, right? It was a very different sales motion of going in and giving it away for the freemium model and then transferring that. When I went to Cubal, what I found is that their pipeline was stuck in the middle. And I'm like, okay, so this is not working. And so I called a bunch of companies that didn't buy and I got really lucky. I talked to a couple of VPs engineering who were our customers. And I said, why didn't you buy? And he said, I'm not your customer. And I said, why? And he said, well, you know, I don't really use Hadoop. I don't have massive amounts of data. I have one great engineer and, you know, I I don't have my data in the cloud. I'm like, aha, okay. So I've got a qualification mechanism that we called COMSA, which was, are you on the cloud? Do you have an object store? Is it massive amounts of data? Is it ad hoc? Is it structured and unstructured? And if you answered three of five of those, we would move forward. And so it was about like figuring out the puzzle of the market and the entry points. And we did the same thing when I went to Braintree, right? I was like, okay, how is this being sold? Is it being sold correctly? Who are the ancillary players in the market? How can I get to market quick? And what's a repeatable motion that I can see really quickly? And I think that's, you know, when people say, what is your superpower? I think that's my superpower is sort of pattern matching and being able to see, yeah. And your pattern matching, like when you said you went to Braintree, like Braintree was doing over 2 billion yes. when you went to Braintree. Yeah, we were doing $2.3 billion. Yeah, okay, and Engineard was doing less than a million. No, 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 Engineard was doing, we did like 50 million. When you started? Oh, when I started, yeah, I was doing nothing. Yeah, it was small. Yeah, exactly, but you're asking the same questions, trying to draw a similar set of patterns of like, who the hell am I selling to? What am I selling? And how are we going to get it into their hands? Exactly. And, you know, the interesting thing for me, the lessons that I learned in my startup world, I was able to bring to Braintree. The VP of sales ops at PayPal worked for me at Cubal. And I brought him into Braintree and I said to him, we're going to do everything we did at Cubal. We're just going to do it at scale. And so we went in and we did the same. We brought ABM and we brought BDRs and we started doing marketing campaigns we ended up building campaigns that would go into the back book and across the organization. We built out a methodology for pipeline management. When I was at Cubal, we had no data because we had no revenue. And so what we did was every month, I built a plan for a million dollars ARR, and then every month I would measure it against it and tell the board where we were and pivot based on 
you know, acceleration or deceleration of that plan. When I went to Braintree, we didn't have good processes in Salesforce. We didn't have discipline. We weren't using Salesforce the way we needed to. And so we just, I said, okay, it's bad data. Let's take a snapshot of it and let's look at trends week over week, month over month, start to force the discipline and start to look at how do we manage through commit, best case and pipeline. And then we brought all of that with us to PayPal. And so, you know, that's really was the fundamentals of the building blocks of how do you build the machinery around sales? Because sales is a science, but you address the market differently and you could use a lot of creativity around the types of markets you're addressing. So sales is a science, but decision-making is a bit more of an art. When you think about the art of deciding, and maybe it's a science, but when you think about the art of deciding what your next company is going to be, besides following certain leaders, what are non-negotiables for you that are characteristics of the organization that you need to see in order for you to jump in? You know, I think it's really important to have an environment that's collaborative, where that people have a voice. And when you go into interview with folks to join a company, it's about, you know, how do they talk about each other? How do they work? And how do they work cross-functionally? You know, I have a lot of respect for VPs of marketing because I did the job and I know how difficult it is. And the same thing with engineering. I haven't done the engineering job, but I've been very close to it. And the same thing with PM and knowing the other functions. So there's a little bit of chemistry. There's a little bit of, you know, market opportunity. I'm very good at seeing the market opportunity. The question is, you know, can you build the right team for that market? And do you have the right funding source? And are you going to get the trajectory? I think the when I look at, you know, I came to Braintree because the opportunity for me personally was to show I could scale, where we went from 2.3 to 2.7 to 3.2 in 18 months. Billion. Yeah, billion. Right. Okay. And then I went to North America and I ran North America Enterprise, which is billions and billions of dollars, right? It's the largest, you know, region within PayPal. And then Australia Enterprise. And then Jordy ended up working for me again as VP of sales ops. So we, I had sales ops and sales enablement and built that up. And so I think when you look at opportunities, you have to look at like, what can I bring to bear? Can I make an impact? And, you know, are they going to let me to have enough room and enough influence for me to drive change or to build a sustainable business? Yeah. I've heard you say that whenever you join a company, you always close a deal or two. Is that true as a rep? Tell me more about that. Well, I always want to be part of, yeah, that's the first thing I do is I get on with customers, right? So I just want to find out and I want to be with the sales teams. You know, I consider myself after a lot of years selling pretty much, I, I consider myself a salesperson who knows an enormous amount about the process and the art. And, you know, the thing about sales is that you can't see that someone's selling you, right? That you're just actually on the same side of the table with them helping solve problems. And so you want to be able to see that and see what talent you have, what the process is, what is the conversation, where are the gems that are being dropped on the floor that could be picked up and, and be used as a way to accelerate sales in a repeatable fashion? So, yeah, I'd like to get involved. You know, I'm still involved with a lot of our customers. I have more senior conversations 
and I may not be involved in the mechanics of the deal as much, but I am involved with sort of how do you build out the strategy for, for massive amounts of revenue for companies that PayPal has in their portfolio. The other thing that is honestly so cool that you do is like, even when I was asking you about like, what are the characteristics that you look for in companies? Most guests answers are like fast growing, incredible product market fit up and to the right. You don't look for that. No. Like that, you do not look for that. I think there's a little crazy in you that enjoys that it's not necessarily going super good and you do want to turn it around. Have you had an equal share of companies that were going in the wrong direction that you had to turn the ship around as you have going up and to the right? You know, I've never really jumped into up and to the right. You know, it just, to me, was not that interesting if you're going to be a cog in a wheel of something that's moving. I mean, it's interesting financially, don't get me wrong. And it actually makes a lot of people's careers. That said, you know, I joined Kana probably too early because all of my peers at Netscape went to Google and I had jumped earlier and I probably would have taken that ride because I, everyone I, there on their executive team were people I were my peers at Netscape. The challenge I think for me, like even at Braintree, when we were looking at it, the business had stalled out a bit. And so we were looking at how do we, you know, accelerate that. And I love doing that because, you know, that's a puzzle. There's a puzzle to fix. I think I'm, I'm a little bit, I don't know, maybe you call it crazy. I call it brave. I think that, you know, there's a certain amount of chutzpah maybe or belief in yourself where you think you can come in and make a difference and you can make a change. You know, I also think it comes down to the vision and the mission of the people that you're working with. How committed are they? Like, how committed are they to do this? Do they have the ability to pivot when things change? Because markets change and competition changes and relationships and partnerships change. And then the other piece is, you know, do you have support of the board? How supportive is the board you're working with or your management team? You know, I, I'm lucky enough at PayPal to be in, in a company that really promotes women and they're really focused on women. And, you know, I work for a woman who is extraordinary at what she does. So I learn a lot there as well. And I think you have to look at a company and say, okay, you know, can I grow here? Can I learn here? And those are really important. If I'm going to go in for a ride, I might as well just go to a big company and make a lot of money and ride my motorcycle and my windsurf, you know? <laughs> I do know. Well, I don't know because I don't ride a motorcycle, nor do I windsurf, but I can imagine both those things are pretty freaking fun. So a couple things. One, when you go into an organization that you feel like needs to change, needs to do things differently... And by the way, I hate the 30, 60, 90 question, but the essence of the question is the same. Are there things that you do differently in your first 45, 90 days in an organization like that than you would in, I don't know, a Netscape or a Connor or something? Yeah. The first thing I do is skip levels. I need to know who's in the organization, what's working, what's not working, what everybody's view is. So it's a listening tour. It's a big listening tour. It's much more than an action-oriented, okay, you don't have a sales team and you got to go out and talk to customers and you got to build stuff behind you as you go. This is something that's established and, you know, you have to determine where the big rocks are. Where can you make an impact? You know, just in my, my new organization that I'm taking over, we put an acronym together called ASK, right? We're going to accelerate revenue. We're going to standardize operations and we're going to increase our knowledge. 
I came about that by talking to my directs, my directs, directs, and then all of my peers and their skip levels, what's working, what's not working, and then went to the product teams, went to the PMM team, went to the customer success team. And I knew because I ran North America where that intersection was. But for me, that was super important. That's very different than the work I'm doing on the other side of the house where I'm running, you know, a hundred person sales team, which is honey, shopping, QR, risk as a service, and buy now, pay later, where we're building, right? I doing something completely different there. It's about like hiring. I have a VP there who runs that business for me. It's about helping him facilitate resources, helping him make connections across the company, working through strategies for integration of products and, and go to market, starting to do integrated sales and marketing campaigns. It's a very different thing than going in and you know rewiring something for further scale. I'm in a unique position right now because with global professional services, I actually am looking at the underpinnings of sales from beginning to end, from an SE to technical account managers and integration experts. I own a support team. I have 100 people doing tickets. And I get to see the breadth and the depth of the sale in a very different way. And to me, that's been interesting. And I know I can run efficiencies here. And you got to be really careful about that because you have really talented people that you want to keep and you want to give them opportunities to do something, but you want them to do it a little differently. And so it's still very creative, but it's a different experience. I've heard you say in the past that the most important trait to you in someone that works for you, a rep in the context of this conversation, is intelligence. That was probably five years ago. Do you still stand by that? I do. I would say I would put it in the context of curiosity and intelligence. Like curious people make great sales reps. So one of the questions I always ask is like, what do you do? Tell me about yourself. Like, what do you do outside of work? How curious are you about things? And do you have an actual need to get information? Because selling is about listening, aggregating, synthesizing, and then providing solutions that meet the needs of the people that you're listening to. And so, you know, you have to be intelligent enough to understand that you can't be the smartest person in the room, right? But you have to be very, very curious about, so I would only caveat that, that I learned that curiosity is really important. It's probably the number one thing that makes a successful sales rep. And so when you interview for intelligence, curiosity, et cetera, you don't necessarily need to see tells in their professional career about curiosity? I mean, I have a series of questions I've learned in my past that I ask. The first one is, okay, so what companies do you admire? And the reason I ask that is because I wanna know like how wired are they into understanding the environments that they live in? You know, are they gonna tell me it's Apple or Google? Are they gonna tell me it's like Jivox, right? Like, and the next question I ask is, well, why? And usually, I look for, are you telling me the same thing that you read in a paper? Well, I like them because I like the way that they, their products. And if you say their products, I'm like, aha, now I know, like, okay, you, you tend towards that. I like their sales motion. Okay, that's great. I love where their competitive stance is in the market. Oh, okay, you think differently. And then the next question I ask is, well, if you were to compete against them, how would you do it? And that's the big question. Have you thought about it? 
are you thoughtful enough about the environment and the businesses and the companies? If you really admire a company, you probably sit back and think about like, how would I break this apart? And where would I go first? And that also tells me if someone says, oh, I admire, I don't know, Goodyear tires. And, you know, I like them because they've got such great brand names. And I'm like, well, how would you compete against them? And they'd say, well, I'd start an ancillary business that actually helped sell rims to tires first. I'm making something up. But I'm like, okay, so how creative are you in your thinking about that? And how broad do you think? And where do you start? Do you start, my husband's an engineer, so he starts at the bottom and goes to the top. I always go big and go small. And so it's like, where are you on that spectrum of your thinking? To me, that's really important because I think selling is something you can teach. It takes a lot of discipline but it also takes the really good salespeople are extremely thoughtful about their approaches and they're very creative in the way that they solve their customers' problems. I've never heard that, but I love that line of questioning. I love that. What are your favorite interview questions? What are the things that you love to ask in almost every interview? Everyone talks about their successes and they have a story. You have a story you tell. And so I think you try to interrupt the story to try to understand the depth behind that story. You know, I had someone do it to me once where they're like, look at that bird out the window. Cause they wanted to see if how quickly I would jump back into my story versus talk about the bird. So I talked about the bird for 10 minutes, right? Because I sort of saw that coming. When you interview people, it's about, first of all, they have to match the pattern of the things that you're looking for. Right. So if I'm looking for someone with five years of sales experience, they have to have that qualification. I do know people who have hired kids out of good schools and just said, OK, we can teach you everything. I don't know that that's necessarily the right thing to do in sales. You want to look for continued successes, but you want to know the why they were successful because you can get lone wolves coming in and say, I'm successful and they break a lot of glass behind them, right? And so then you can't replicate that success. You've got basically someone who's been in a hero culture where you hand them the ball and then they run it to the end mm. versus building a team, right? How do you work with others? Tell me about when someone was successful and what you admired about that. Tell me about you know a failure you had, what'd you learn, right? And people don't like talking about their failures. And so, you know, they'll say something like, you know, I wore the wrong shoes to a meeting and I learned that I should never do that again. Or, you know, they give you something rote. And once in a while you get somebody who tells you something meaningful. For me, it's about capabilities. And one of the things that I've been reading about recently is that a lot of men get hired for their capabilities. A lot of women get hired for their experience. And so really trying to understand capabilities when you're looking at a diverse community is super important. And being able to say, are they a capable human being where they've had success in the past and they can manage through failures to hit another level of success. And when you ask about the failure component and they answer mismatching shoelaces versus something meaningful, is it self-awareness that you're trying to scratch at? Exactly. Yes. And also ability to articulate some truth, right? Are you authentic? Are you going to be who I'm seeing you are now when we start working together? And I've made mistakes hiring. Everybody has. And, and it's so painful for the team and it's so painful for the organization. It's one of the 
hardest things to do. But when you do it right, it accelerates everybody around you. I look at my job as right now is taking this enormously talented team that I have and just accelerating their impact and just getting them the resources and the support that they need to be world-class. And I think that's where you're looking for people who want to be part of that and sincerely want to be part of that. Can we do this again at some point? <laughs> I don't know. I think I exposed myself too much here. <laughs> I think this was awesome. And I want another go at it. This was great. I always ask the same questions to wrap it up. The first one, what does the word grit mean to you? And how do you or your teams apply it? I was lucky enough to interview Angela Duckworth for our what? SKO. Yes, two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Come I on. I did. I got to spend no yes. Way. And she's so great. Oh my God. Oh, she's the dream guest on my show. I'm, I got to get her. Oh my God. She's amazing. Yeah, she's amazing. And we had like an hour before where they were setting stuff up. So we were just talking about our lives and she's just an amazing, could you imagine a job where, well, you do this, I guess, but you get to interview successful people and ask them why they're <laughs> successful. I'm like, whoa, she gets to study them. And so grit, I look at grit along the lines of what she was talking about, which is you have a passion for something and then you have perseverance when things don't go right. You have the ability to step in and do it again and move your arm a little bit more on the boom and move it again and move it again until you get it, right? Like to be able to have that perseverance to fail. To me, that's real grit. So I was really excited about having that conversation with her and talking to her about her experiences with her children and what she experienced when she was worried about her children not having grit and not having the ability to really persevere the hardships that are going to come to all of us. What was the second question? <laughs> that was the first one. I don't think I asked you the second one, which was, oh, are you hiring? Yes. Yes, I am. I have lots of positions open. Yes. And how does someone get a hold of you? The best way would be just to send me an email on my marcycampbell at paypal.com and contact me because I would either that or through LinkedIn, either way works. I am always looking for extraordinary people who are curious and intelligent and are willing to take a lot of risks. Marcy, thank you for the time. Thank you. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes with CROs from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.